0: Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 696. I am your host... Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Great show and great story today. Oh, yes. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is the main fiction, and it is After the Atrocity by Ian Creasy. And then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So I think we'll jump, instead of me waffling on, we'll jump straight in to the, today's story. Like I say, After the Atrocity by Ian Creasy. Ian Creasy lives in Yorkshire, England. Several of his stories have previously been podcasted at Starship Sofa. Most recently, The Language of Flowers, which was in episode 542 of June 2018 all those years ago a collection of his science fiction stories the shapes of strangers was published by Newcom Press in 2019 for more information please visit his website iancrissy.com now this story was originally appeared in asimov's science fiction in the march april 2017 edition and this story is narrated by Christina M. Rao. Christina is the author of What We Do to Make Us Whole the Elgin Award winning Liberating the Astronauts and Two Poetry chapbooks. She serves as poet in residence for both Cedar Mayor and the Oceanside Library and was the 2020 Walt Whitman Birthplace Port of the Year. Her poetry airs on Destiny's radio show and appears in various literary journals. When she She's not writing, she's teaching yoga or watching the game show network. And there's a link to Christina's website as well. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
1: After the Atrocity by Ian Creasy Read by Christina M. Rao It's 20 minutes since the duplicator's last glitch, so I ask one of the guards outside to fetch me lunch, hoping that for once... I might be able to eat it uninterrupted by urgent repair work. Yes, Miss Ruiz, he says as he salutes. I don't have a rank or a uniform, just a lab coat, but they still salute me. At first, I found it endearing. Now, it just reminds me how much I miss Caltech, where nobody ever salutes anyone. While I wait for my meal, I watch the crawlers assemble the body Of Abu Hamid. This copy, the ninth, is nearly finished. Each copy has appeared quicker than the last. I've improved the duplicator's speed at the price of needing more operator oversight. The workbench is electroplated with gold, a non reactive metal that shines under the lab's fluorescent lights. Abu Hamid's naked body lies directly on the bench but it's not uncomfortable for him because he isn't alive yet and no one cares about his comfort anyway. Not since he killed 10,000 people in the atrocity. His ribs stand out from his chest and his wild beard needs a trim. His eyes are closed, but nevertheless, he looks like he might leap off the bench at any moment. I shiver to calm myself, I move the high-grade cutter torch to my desk within easy reach. I feel safer knowing I can fire a lethal bolt into his heart. Lunch arrives. The smell of a burger and fries is a welcome antidote to the duplicator's acrid tang. The tray has a selection of sauce sachets. This is what passes for menu variety at the base. I'm just about to choose a mustard when the door opens. Sophie Bryant, to see you, miss, the guard announces. A tall black woman walks in, wearing a jacket and skirt, more colorful than any of the base's military uniforms. You're the lawyer, I ask. I'm Violetta Ruiz. She nods and extends her hand for me to shake. Pleased to meet you. I do have my own office, you know. Why did you insist on someone coming here? This is a classified lab. I was the only lawyer who could get clearance. I point at the nearly complete copy of Abu Hamid on the workbench. I want advice from someone who knows what's going on and isn't just rubber stamping something they haven't seen. I pause to take a few bites of food, wondering how best to phrase my doubts. I vividly remember waking up on the same gold bench as Abu Hamid's latest copy. The duplicator is so important that it needs to run 24 hours a day with an operator on constant standby to resolve glitches and improve speed. I'd copied myself to create an additional operator. The military would never have entrusted their most important prisoner to the duplicator without seeing that proof of concept. The experience of being copied has given me a sharper sense of empathy. And the more copies of Abu Hamid that I make, the more sinister it feels. I don't know where they all go, but I presume they aren't forming a choir. I'm worried about what's happening to these copies, I say. Whatever it is, I'm facilitating it. I don't want to be party to anything illegal. There's no need to worry. Bryant gestures to Abu Hamid and says, I'm his lawyer. It's my job to make sure he's treated appropriately. He has a lawyer, I ask, surprised. I've never seen Bryant when the collection team comes to take finished copies away. Of course he does. This is the United States of America. We have a constitution and a legal system. Detainees get lawyers, she says proudly. I half expect her to show me her diploma. The lunches come in large portions for soldiers' appetites. I've eaten as much as my calorie app recommends, so I drop the rest of the food into the duplicator's intake hopper. I always find it ironic that the anti-American terrorist is made out of all-American burgers. That's why I'm here, Bryant adds. I was cleared to enter this lab because I already know there are copies of him. So you must know what's happening to them, I say. She doesn't reply, and I remember that the detainee's official designation is only Prisoner 75832. I know who he is, I tell her. He's the most famous terrorist on the planet. There's no need to be coy about it. They're interrogating him, right? Obviously, says Bryant. It must be hard going if they need so many copies. He's a hard guy, she says, her face an impassive mask. She's not going to volunteer anything, so I'm forced to come straight out with the question that's been nagging at me. "'Is he being tortured?' "'Of course not,' she snaps. "'Torture is illegal. There are interrogation protocols, and I make sure everything's done by the book.'" "'Sounds like a lot of work,' I say. "'When this copy's finished, there'll be nine altogether, plus the original. Do you attend every interrogation?' "'They're all recorded,' Bryant says." her voice rising in anger. I can watch any session I like. Don't accuse me of not doing my job. All right, all right, I say. Keep your voice down. The original Violetta is asleep in the back room. She has a heck of a temper, and I don't want her blaming me for waking her up. We argue quite enough already. Keep my voice down, Bryant points to the motionless Abu Hamid. What? Am I interrupting his beauty sleep? My God, get your priorities straight. Whose side are you on? There are terrorist plots we need to uncover. There could be a ticking bomb, a bioweapon, a nuclear meltdown. Don't you worry about him. Someone's got to, I say, barely restraining myself from adding, even if his lawyer doesn't. I suppose the job falls to me, since I'm the only other person in the world who knows what it's like to be a copy. Does he get visits from the Red Cross, I ask? Or the Red Crescent, or whatever it is? You don't need to know that. I guess not. But right now, I'm working round the clock to copy him. It's tiring and stressful. I'm practically burnt out. Maybe I'll slow down a little. Take it easy. I reach for my Diet Coke and suck a long, leisurely slurp through the straw. Bryant purses her lips and glowers at me. If you must know, the original is dead and the duplicators classified, so obviously we can't have Red Cross visitors seeing all these identical copies. The original's dead, I exclaim. So much for protocols and by the book. Or is that the final chapter? It was an accident, Bryant says. Obviously no one wanted to kill our most important prisoner. Obviously, I say, since it seems to be her favorite word. She gives me a withering look, "'Is there anything else, or have we finished? "'After all, as you point out, I do have a lot of work to do. "'Even though Bryant isn't in uniform, she's part of the system. "'She's not going to rock the boat. "'We've finished,' I say. "'Thanks for coming. "'Please send me written confirmation of your advice. "'After she's gone, I wonder whether I should have pressed her harder "'about the death of the original Abu Hamid. "'If the original had died rather than one of the copies I'd made. Then wasn't it my responsibility? Or was it? Maybe the duplicator makes the interrogators reckless. They can go as far as they like, knowing he's easily replaceable. There's always another copy on the workbench. How far do they go? What are the authorized procedures? Bryant said it's not torture because torture is illegal. So if it's by the book, it can't be torture. I'm not convinced by this sophistry or Brian's legal sign-off. My work is top secret. The only lawyers who know what's happening are those most trusted by the military and least likely to object. A beat from the duplicator breaks my chain of thought. I spend half an hour debugging the latest glitch. Building the copy's brain is the final part of the process and the most delicate. The door opens without warning. I know who it is. He visits often enough. That the guards no longer bother to announce him. Derek Cole is so pale that he might have inhabited the base all his life, never seeing the sun. He keeps his hair cropped with a tight buzz cut, barely exposing its ginger color. A few freckles dot his head like spots on a misshapen dye. Good news His voice always sounds as if he's shouting orders across a battlefield. The final delivery has arrived! So we've got all the parts you need. You can start building another duplicator to relieve the bottleneck. Though I still don't understand why you can't just print another duplicator out of this one. I told you it's optimized for organic material. People, not machinery. There is a difference. Before I can start complaining, I say, it'll take a while to build a second duplicator and calibrate it. Do you want me to prioritize that or keep making copies of The Prisoner? You can do both, can't you? Just print some extra copies of yourself. I flinch. Having one duplicate is bad enough. We keep arguing about what'll happen when we return to California. Which of us will get my apartment, my job, my friends, my life? Dividing it all between even more copies would be nightmarish. Absolutely not, I say. You're already getting two for the price of one. He frowns. All right, I'll send you some engineers. You can begin the duplicator after you've finished this. Cole points to the body on the workbench. When will it be ready? About five o'clock, I say, deliberately using civilian time. The original Violetta has started saying 1,700, like everyone else in the base. I'll tell the collection team, he says. What are you doing with these guys, I ask. What happens to them all? Cole shakes his head. You don't need to know that. Maybe I do, I say. You always want these copies as quickly as possible. How long do you keep them for? If you, um, dispose of them after a week, I could cut some corners in the internal organs. I hate myself for coming up with that suggestion, but I need to get him talking. Don't cut corners, says Cole, The copies need to be absolutely identical. Why, I demand. I can do a better job if I know what you're trying to achieve. He pauses, absently rubbing his neck. That's a good point, he says at last. I suppose it won't hurt to give you an outline, since you already know the classified part. The duplicator became top secret when DARPA noticed my work at Caltech and realized the implications. Cole sits in the other Violetta's chair and says, It's simple, really. When we capture prisoners, we need information. The problem is that we don't know whether they're telling the truth. No matter how far we go, we can never be sure of how much is true. At least we can't when we only have one person to interrogate. But if we have copies of the same suspect and we question them separately, I grasp his point. If they say different things, they must be lying. Obviously! But why do you need so many copies, I ask? Surely, as soon as you get a consistent message out of a couple of them, you know you're on the right track. He smiles at my naivete. It's not that easy. These guys are terrorists at constant risk of being captured. They have cover stories, and stories inside the cover stories. When they're under pressure, they'll admit they were lying, then change to another lie. How do you get past that? More pressure, he says. Eventually, the cover story runs out. When they exhaust what they've prepared beforehand, they invent details that start to differ. But it takes time to get to that point. Especially if they don't want to talk, I comment. Cole chuckles knowingly. Even the truth isn't constant. When you tell an anecdote, I bet you don't tell it the same way twice. I suppose you minimize unwanted variation by using a uniform sample in a constant procedure, I say. Now I understand why Abu Hamid's copies have to be identical. And they don't even know that they're copies, so they don't have my existential angst to distort their fidelity to the original. Practice makes perfect. We're getting results and it's all down to you, Cole grins at me, like a proud soccer coach for whom I've scored a goal. You've made interrogation reliable. When this is over and your gadget's declassified, I'll nominate you for a medal, he gestures to the duplicator. When you build the next one of these, can it be faster? Not if you want the copies to be identical. It's not a trivial task to make an exact replica. I trot out my standard gee whiz fact. There are seven octillion atoms in the human body. That's seven billion, billion, billion. It's a big job to put all those together in the right order. Building a person takes time, and I'm running out of shortcuts. You can't make a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. I guess not, but you can have a lot of fun trying. Cole laughs and heads for the door. On his way out, he waves at Abu Hamid's body. See you later. When the door closes behind him, I slump onto my desk, hating what I've got myself into. I can't stop thinking about Cole's words More pressure. His phrase echoes in my head, sounding creepier every time. I didn't accuse Cole of torture, because I knew he'd only deny it, like Bryant. But surely that's what it amounts to. I've invented a machine that makes torture reliable, and I'm operating it. 24 hours a day. It'll never stop. Even if they squeeze Abu Hamid dry, they'll still want more copies to use for training new interrogators and testing new techniques. In future, there'll be other prisoners as the war on terror continues its glacial course, grinding everyone in its path. I don't care about getting a medal when this is over. Not least because I can't imagine it ever being over. "'I want to go home,' I say out loud. "'I want to see my friends. "'I want to get dressed up and go to roller disco. "'I signed a 12-month contract. "'At least my original did. "'What will happen after our stint "'when we both want to go home?' "'The lawyer said that Abu Hamid's copies "'aren't getting Red Cross visits,' because that would be a security breach, revealing the duplicator. What about me? Will they let me go home? Will I ever leave this base? I take deep breaths, trying to calm myself. Surely the duplicator will be declassified eventually. Surely they won't treat me the same way they treat terrorists. Yet I'm dodging responsibility if I think it's how they treat terrorists as if I'm not part of that. Cole's interrogation program wouldn't work without my assembly line of victims. I look at the workbench where the crawlers are building Abu Hamid's brain with all its sensory neurons and pain receptors. I've created him specifically to be tortured. It sickens me to think that I'm creating people solely to suffer, people who would surely beg me to stop. What can I do? I could break the duplicator, but that would only be a temporary hitch. If I refuse to repair it, they'll bring someone else in. It'll be fixed eventually. Then more legions of Abu Hamid will march into the torture chamber. Unless I delete his data. The original Abu Hamid is dead. The current body on the bench isn't finished. So it can't be used as another starting point. And the previous copies have already been interrogated, so they're no longer a clean sample. If I delete the scan data, no one can make any fresh copies of him, even if the duplicator itself still functions. Deleting data is usually impossible. It's all backed up off-site. The duplicator is different due to the enormous amount of information required to specify a human being's 7 billion 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 atoms. There's not enough bandwidth to transmit it, even with the best compression. The duplicator has its own vast internal memory to store scans. That data only exists inside the lab. If it disappears, it's gone forever. I grab the keyboard, then write a program to delete files and overwrite the memory to prevent recovery attempts. When I look at the files to check I've included everything, I see the duplicator's most recent scans. Chimpanzee F. Violeta Ruiz. Prisoner 75832. I shiver when I see my own data, remembering Cole's casual remark, just print some extra copies of yourself. I include Violeta Ruiz in the deletion list. I remember what it's like to wake up on the bench. I don't want any more of my copies chained to the production line. But another version of me already exists. She's asleep in the bedroom. I can't run the program without telling her. I know how angry I'd be if she did that to me. We have to agree our plan, since we'll both face the consequences. While I wait for her to wake up, I try to think of an easy way out. I don't want to make a stand, but I can't avoid a decision. If I let the interrogations continue, I'll be complicit in them. The lab's gray walls feel ever more oppressive, as I wonder whether I'll ever escape them. How can I avoid being a security breach? That's only an issue as long as the duplicator remains secret. If everyone knew about it, there'd be nothing to hide. But if I publicize the duplicator, then I'll go to jail for leaking classified information. That's hardly an improvement. Deleting Abu Hamid's data might be considered a crime. Can I avoid the rap for that? Or must I martyr myself for my principles? At last, activity comes from my quarter's as a toilet flushes and a wisp of shower steam curls through the doorway. No matter how often I remind her, she never closes the door properly while she's showering. I'm such a slob. I send the guard to fetch a breakfast tray. Soon my original emerges, with a towel wrapped around her hair and a sullen expression on her face. She still hasn't forgiven me for winning the coin toss that put her on night shift. Not that it makes much difference, since we so rarely get outdoors. While she eats breakfast, I tell her what's happened. Bryant's visit, my conversation with Cole, the program I've written to delete the scan data. "'Are you crazy?' she yells, spitting out toast crumbs. "'No more than you,' I say, offended. "'What's your problem? Have you forgotten the atrocity?' We need to rip that bastard open and find out every damn thing he knows. Interrogation is one thing. Torture is quite another. Yeah, yeah, big deal, she says. That's their business, not ours. Why don't you leave it to them and stop meddling? You're okay with torture? She shrugs. I'm sure it's not torture, torture. We're the good guys, remember? It's authorized procedures in exceptional circumstances. You said Bryant gave you the legal go-ahead, so what are you worried about? The duplicator is classified, I remind her. The interrogation protocols were probably written by military bureaucrats here in the base. I bet they weren't signed off by anyone accountable to the public, anyone elected. Would politicians authorize creating umpteen copies of someone so they could all be tortured? Oh, come on, she says. Do you expect the president to personally ring you up and give you permission? Do you want the Attorney General to hold your hand while you're cranking the machine? Get real. We gaze at each other with equal astonishment, amazed at our opposing attitudes. We're the same person. At least, we were a few weeks ago. How could we diverge so much? I remember waking up on the workbench. Every time I make a copy of Abu Hamid, I feel a kinship with him, that the other Violetta doesn't feel. And perhaps knowing I'm a copy creates a psychological pressure for me to differentiate myself from my original, carving out my own identity. Yet it's disconcerting to realize how contingent my opinions are. My convictions are fragile, built on the shifting sands of happenstance. I don't even know for sure how badly he's being treated. Maybe I should just let it go. Trust the system and outsource my conscience to Bryant's legal sign-off. After all, what can I achieve anyway? I can't uninvent the duplicator. I can't prevent it being misused. I can't put the genie back in the bottle. My original says, You were asleep when I finished the first copy of The Terrorist. Cole and his flunkies were worried that it might not have worked properly. They interviewed him, making sure he had all his faculties, I went along to check whether there were any glitches. Abu Hamid's freshly minted copies all possess the same memories, ready to be probed by Cole's team with standardized procedures to minimize divergence. My original and I have lived longer since duplication. We've seen different things. We've changed. If only one of us can go home, who should it be? She continues. It was just an interview, not an interrogation, so he was happy to talk. He spoke in English, boasting about what he'd done. He described the atrocity as a great blow against the infidel. He laughed. She leans forward and stares into my eyes. He laughed, she repeats. 10,000 people dead, and he was laughing about it. He called it a divine judgment one that would inspire the whole world to rise up against the great Satan. Then he said there was more to come. It was the most sickening thing I've ever seen. Excuse me if I don't shed any tears for him. Her expression is stern, as cold and hard as Bryant. I don't like what she's become. I don't want to walk down that path. I never suspected how much darkness lurks within my heart. She says, I could ask how you became such a hand-wringing sissy, but I already know you weren't there. You didn't hear him. I looked at him, and I saw the face of evil. When we're confronted by evil, we can't run or hide or worry about paperwork. We have to act. She's showing me how tough I can be. I try to speak calmly while readying myself for what I must do next. So you're saying that when we see evil in front of us, we're justified in taking any action necessary? Obviously, she says. Her blue t-shirt is a thin layer of polyester. No protection at all. Are you sure? I ask. We should do anything? Yes, damn it! Too late. A spark of realization reaches her eyes. I grab the cutter torch and let rip a fizzling bolt arcs into her chest she screams but i i don't see her fall after i fire i lunge straight to the keyboard and run the program i've written the duplicator beeps as its data disappears two guards burst through the lab door drop the weapon the first one shouts i've already dropped it i raise my hands trying not to gag on the stench of melted fabric and burnt flesh it's sabotage i say I tried to stop her but it was too late. No one can prove which of us deleted the data. I want to stand up for my principles, but not yet. Not in the depths of a military prison where sabotage is treason. Some day, when I feel safe, I'll indulge my conscience and speak up for truth and justice. But right now, expediency Is the order of the day.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: And there you go. Big thank you. Ian, thank you so much. Nice to have you back on There, We're all getting a little bit older. <laughs> thank you indeed. And Christina, thank you. Oh, what a voice. Thank you indeed. So it is our very own Amy H. Sturgis Aims.
3: Hello my friends, it is time for another look back into genre history. And as is my custom, I am focusing this month on something spooky. Because it is the spooky season, and Halloween is my favorite holiday. And once again on social media I'm doing a countdown the entire month for Halloween. And I usually recommend something that is good for reading if you want to feel the vibes of the season, and this year is no exception. I'm looking forward to recommending a book here that I think really fits the bill, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, and I want to recommend it. And that is A Haunted History of Invisible Women, True Stories of America's Ghosts by Liana Renee Heber and Andrea Janes. This just came out from Kensington Citadel Press. 2022, just hot off the press. There are several ways in which this book intersects science fiction, and one of the first is the authors. Let me tell you about the authors. Liana Renee Heber is an award-winning author and paranormal history expert. She's a regular speaker at science fiction conventions, so you may have seen her, particularly if you're around the United States and you've been active in the convention scene. She's also appeared on film and television on series series including Mysteries at the Museum and Beyond the Unknown. She's a three-time PRISM Award winner for her debut novel, The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker, and a Daphne du Maurier Award finalist for Darker Still. After earning a BFA in theater performance and a focused study on the Victorian era, she spent many years in the professional regional theater circuit skills that serve her well as a speaker and a ghost tour guide for Burroughs of the Dead in New York. She lives in New York City, and her website is lianareneheber.com. Andrea Janes is the founder and owner of Burroughs of the Dead. That's New York City's premier ghost tour company, which has been featured in The New York Times, Jezebel, Bustle, Cosmopolitan, Huffington Post, NPR, others as well. Andrea is also the author of the YA novel Glamour, several horror stories, short stories, and the horror novel *Burrows of the Dead, which was an inspiration for her company. And you can find more about that company at burroughsofthedead.com. So what is A Haunted History of Invisible Women? It's a compilation of and investigation into ghost stories, not so much about the ghost stories themselves as about what the ghost stories tell us about ourselves as people who consume ghost stories, and what they tell us in particular about views on women. This is a feminist contemplation, if you will, on women-based or women-centric ghost stories. Let me give you the official blurb here. Quote, Sorrowful widows, vengeful Jezebels, innocent maidens, wronged lovers, former slaves, even the occasional axe-murderers. America's female ghosts differ widely in background, class, and circumstance. Yet one thing unites them, their ability to instill fascination and fear long after their deaths. Here are the full stories behind some of the best-known among them, as well as the lesser-known, though no less powerful. Tales whispered in darkness often divulge more about the teller than the subject. America's most famous female ghosts, from Mrs. Spencer, who haunted comedian Joan Rivers's New York apartment, to Bridget Bishop, the first person executed during the Salem witchcraft trials— mirror each era's fears and prejudices. Yet, through urban legends and campfire stories, even ghosts like the nameless, hard-working woman lost in the infamous Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire achieve a measure of power and agency in death in ways unavailable to them as living women, riveting for skeptics and believers alike with humor, curiosity, and expertise A Haunted History of Invisible Women offers a unique lens on the significant role these ghostly legends play, both within the spook-seeking corners of our minds and in the consciousness of a nation, end quote. So I think you can probably get a good idea already of why I really enjoyed this book. It is about why we tell these stories and what messages are encoded in them, what work these stories perform. And I appreciate the deconstruction of that. In the introductions, I found some good stuff here. Uh, First, from Andrea James: Quote, In the arena of supernatural fiction, women appear with great regularity, both as gothic, ghostly tropes and as authors. In fact, women authors accounted for a large percentage of the short stories published during the Golden Age of Ghost Stories, from 1840 to 1920. Women triumphed in the critically marginalized world of genre fiction and excelled in the format of the short story, the ideal format for someone squeezing out a living between her other labors. In fact, this era gave women the means to profit from their own labor and to earn a decent living from the sale of their short stories, which leads us to the most interesting line of thought when it comes to women and ghosts, that in their intersection lies a kind of power, End quote. Thought that was quite interesting and helped set the stage for these stories. And for the introduction from Leanna Renee Heber, she notes In this book, we focus on a personally curated selection of stories. By no means is this an exhaustive list, nor is it an encyclopedia or compendium. We hope to examine and unpack some of the inherent tropes of ghost stories, gothic fiction, haunted houses. At various crossroads of women's history. End quote. And I think they accomplished this in great style. Their commentary is at times provocative and always thought provoking. So let me give you a bit of a preview of how the authors organize their discussion of these kinds of ghost stories around central themes. The first part is The theme is Death and the Maiden, and this includes a section on Industrial Monsters, Ghosts of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, The Beautiful Stranger, Kate Morgan and the Hotel de Coronado, Dark Academia, Ghosts of College Campuses, and Forever Maratana, The Ghosts of the Don Cesar Hotel. And yes, you probably picked up on that dark academia part. I am teaching a class on dark academia right now, and I've been writing on dark academia topics, and so I was very excited to look into this section. And in fact, this section led me to the work of Professor Elizabeth Tucker, who is a folklorist scholar and the author of Haunted Halls, which looks into college-related ghost stories as folklore, so I was very excited about that. Part two is Witches, and this includes a red paragon bodice, Bridget Bishop. That's Salem, Massachusetts, if you didn't recognize that, and also from Salem, Tugging at Your Hymn, Dorothy Good. Our Family Trouble, the Bell Witch the launcher, by the way, of multiple works of fiction and film, The Bell Witch, from Tennessee, and Graveyard Dance, The Witch's Curse. Part three focuses on mothers and wives, including still captaining her ship, the ghost of Ma Green, Mama Tried, the everlasting faint, the ghostly wives of West Virginia, and the lady of the house, Eliza Jumel, Part four is Bad Girls, Jezebels, and Killer Women. That includes American Succubi, Soiled Doves of the Frontier, Conspirator to the Assassination, The Ghost of Mary Surratt, A little bit of Abraham Lincoln-related history there, and The Haunting of Lizzie Borden. Part five, Mad Women, an unreliable narrator, Jan Bryant Bartell, Unfinished Business, The Winchester Mystery House, speaking of lore that has launched films and fiction, and A Correct History of the Life and Adventures of the Wandering Woman. This is from central New York and was one that was new to me, and I was intrigued by that tale and the history that inspired it. Part Six, Spinsters and Widows. This includes Miss Treadwell is at Home. From Mother Anne to Sybil, The Spirits of the Great Burned Over, and The Widow and Mrs. Spencer. And Part 7, Frauds, Fakes, and Mythmaking, And that includes The Prestige of Katie King, Willing the Ghosts to Life, Molly and Matilda of the Sorrel Weed House, and The Myth-Making of Marie Roget. That one near and dear to my heart, you may Recall that the Mary Rogers' disappearance and presumed murder was what fueled Edgar Allan Poe in one of his C. Auguste Dupin stories, the tales that helped to inspire the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. The Mary Rogers case led to Poe fictionalizing the case and dealing with it in real time as the case unfolded, as Marie Roget. The book includes an afterword by Bram Stoker award-winning author Linda D. Addison and a very helpful bibliography. I can't think of a better time of year, or a better year for that matter, to ruminate on women's perspectives on the history behind tales that are told and retold and embellished and fictionalized about women. And so if you are looking for a thoughtful and entertaining look at U.S. ghost stories about women, examined by women, and in a sense you're being taken on a ghost tour by professionals in the ghost tour industry, who even turn their lens to the industry itself and consider the ethics of ghost tours themselves, well then, this book belongs on your to-be-read pile. And you can even allow some of its stories to be springboards for finding some good scary films for the scary film season, as... A number of these, including Lizzie Borden, The Bell Witch, and The Winchester House, have inspired movies that certainly are appropriate for Halloween. But you won't watch them the same way once you've read this book, and you've thought about the meanings behind the stories. I do hope that this is useful for your Halloween season, and I look forward to joining you again when we... Get together and talk about something completely different, and take a look back on genre history. Happy Halloween, everyone! Thank you,
2: Amy. Thank you so much. Big hugs, there, last. Thank you so much. I know this is your exciting time this month. So, but and we're both going through. If anyone wants to know, both watching the Star Wars andor. Now, I wobbled at the first episode. I was thinking, oh, it's a little bit slow and a bit, too, you know. But then I realised that these things are only. Thirty minutes, so you know if it, if this was you know like an hour show, that kind of backstory, little bit. I was, mm. but no, I'm happy with it now. everything's going ahead. I'm good. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll come back next week. That will be fantastic. Until then, just like to say good night from me. Thank you for listening.
0: Tuning in to your transmissions, I'm and waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly, it won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal? I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal Getting through Turn on your radio? I want to talk